it is imperative, as we think of the day in which we live, and the task before us, to ask the question, do we live in a post-Christian world? The answer is no. Not if we're thinking of Christ and of his work in the world. The resurrected Christ is alive, and he is working in the world. Thousands are being saved across the whole world. People are passing from death to life in Africa, China, in the Soviet Empire, as well as in South America, Europe, and in this country. How thankful we should be for all these who are joining us on the basis of Christ's finished work in the kingdom of Christ. In this sense, it will never be a post-Christian world. Christ is king, and we await his coming when he will fulfill the fullness of his reign when there will be the restoration of all things. How different the world must look to God as he sees his people over all the world so faithfully going on. Many in our lifetime, even the faithfulness in martyrdom. Surely, the quotation marks the greatest Christian, Living today is someone you and I have never heard of. In this great mass of faithful ones to Christ over all the world. In this sense, it certainly is not a post-Christian world. Christ lives. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are at work in our world. This we must emphasize with joy and praise to the living God. Yet, while we stress this and say it clearly, there is a way that this proper emphasis that it is not a post-Christian world in this sense can be used as a blind to cover up the fact that in another sense it indeed is a post-Christian world. It can be used so that we are detracted from the struggle we face. It is a post-Christian world in that the countries that used to function upon a Christian mentality, a Christian consensus, now function largely on the contrary consensus. That is, that the final reality is not a personal God, but rather that the final reality is only material or energy which has existed in some form forever and which is shaped into its present form by sheer blind chance. And which, therefore, is totally neutral and totally silent in regard to any value to human life and silent concerning moral values or any basis for law. If we fail to recognize this change from society and our country functioning on a Judeo-Christian base, at least as a memory, and if we fail to help the Bible-believing Christians of our country understand this and then do something about it, we have failed in our loyalty to Jesus Christ. It is because the Christian leaders and the Christians have not spoken with courage and consistently to what we say we believe concerning these things in just the last 40 to 80 years that our country has become post-Christian in this very basic and real sense. If we do not speak now, Regardless of the cost to our personal projects, and if there is not a confrontation 
with an emphasis on the word confrontation, on these things, our children and our grandchildren will certainly not call us blessed. Christians, in the last 80 years or so, or so have only seen things in bits and pieces. Instead of seeing that the things which have gradually troubled Christians and others of goodwill, such as over-permissiveness, pornography, the public schools, the breakdown of the family, abortion, and the killing of newborn infants, are only the natural outcome of a change from a Christian worldview to a humanistic one. That is, instead of the final reality, the base of all reality, being a personal infinite God who is the creator of all else, now the dominant worldview is that the final reality is only material energy shaped into its present form by chance. The word humanism means that man is the center, the measure of all things. This means, first of all, that we have no knowledge. This thing of humanism first touches upon the question of knowledge. It means that, first of all, we have no knowledge that people do not find out for themselves. That is, that there is no revelation from God, and that the only values and base for law is what people arbitrary, arbitrarily decide it is at the given moment. This is the real reason for the breakdown in morals, values, and the reason law is now only the arbitrary decision of a few people of what they think is good for society at the given moment. The worldview that the final reality is only material energy shaped by pure chance, inevitably, and if anyone's taking notes, the thing to emphasize is inevitably, that is with absolutely mathematical certainty, brings forth all the results in our country and in society which has led to its breakdown and to its present sorrows. It should be noticed that this new dominant worldview is the very opposite to that which the founding fathers of this country held. Though not all the founding fathers were personally Christian, they founded this country on the base that there is a God who is the Creator, and who gave the inerrable rights upon which this country was built and which gave us the freedoms we have. And you can think easily how this fits into the film, The Second American Revolution, uh, which we saw the, uh, this morning. The new worldview of final reality being only material energy, which has existed forever in some form, never would have and could not have. It never would have, and it could not have, given this country the freedom without chaos which we had, and we still have in some measure. Humanism never could have given this. It not only did not give it, on the very basis of the fact of its very basic presupposition of what the final reality is, in the final reality's neutrality about all values, and about any basis for law. Humanism never could have given that which we now have, which was built upon Reformation Christianity, and which gave us the freedoms which we had, and which happily we still have as a memory, based on the things wherein this country was founded. Though now we are losing that freedom, as this new world view becomes increasingly dominant and has to totally taken over the public schools, public television, and so on, and has largely taken over the courts. 
especially the government and especially the courts, have become the vehicle to force this anti-God view on the total population. I want to repeat that because it's the crux of our whole struggle in this area. The government, and especially the courts, have become the vehicle to force this anti-God view on the total population. For example, the abortion ruling of the Supreme Court annulled the abortion laws in all 50 states and made this form of the killing of human life not only lawful, but to many people, ethical as well. This is the next step to get fixed, fixed firmly in our thinking. Because we have passed from a Christian ethic to no ethic, and that is true. Basically, our country today, this great outreach, has not passed from the Christian ethic to another ethic. It has passed from the Christian ethic to no ethic, a pure relativism. And that being the case, and because the Supreme Court has ruled abortion to be legal, to many, many people, this has become an educational, an educational vehicle to make them feel that it is ethical. Having no other fixed ethic, it is just what law declares that then is accepted as ethical. And we have come to this uh, with the uh, abortion ruling very, very clearly. Along with this is that the courts are increasingly making arbitrary law cut loose, not only from God's law, but from a strict concept concerning the meaning of the Constitution as well. As our courts are making arbitrary law, arbitrary in regard to God's law, increasingly this has drifted into also making arbitrary law as far as the Constitution is concerned. And notice that as this is done, this diminishes the legislature's powers. So there has been a shift, a tremendous shift in the last, say, 80 years uh, in the powers, the three powers of government. And increasing the legislature is diminished as the courts make arbitrary law, arbitrary not only concerning God's law, but arbitrary concerning the Constitution. The pro-abortion people, etc., use the courts rather than the legislatures because the courts are not subject to the people's will and desires through election and especially through re-election. The legislatures must always think of re-election. The courts are appointed for life. And here we find them, therefore, and this being so, they do not have to think of re-election. And those who are pushing the humanist position I use the courts almost exclusively in contrast to the legislatures because they can use the courts because the courts do not have to think of the people's desires as it is, and as it can be expressed in the area of election and re-election. The result is a relative value system, a lack of any final meaning to life, and a system of law that not only is arbitrary, but which is forces the materialistic, humanistic view of final reality on the total population and especially on the children in the public schools. So what we have then is a situation in which logically, if one does indeed hold the humanistic view and this other final reality being only material energy shaped by pure chance, there is no fixed value system because the final reality has nothing to say about values. There is no fixed basis for a unique value to human life. And says the law becomes only arbitrary. And in this setting, therefore, we find that increasingly this view is forced upon the public and specifically and most easily upon the students of the public schools. And this is how your problem of the public school then comes into being. And this is true from the lowest grade through the university. 
In other words, as the humanist view is made totally exclusive as it is in the public schools, what you're doing is really through the educational process forcing this view upon the students all the way from the kindergartens up through the university. Now this is done regardless of what the parents and those who pay for the school by their taxes want to be done. The January 18 Time magazine said, a national poll, showed that 76% of the people want both creation and evolution taught, just as an example. But the courts don't seem to care what the people want. The courts just rule. And at the same time, a medical profession, which now asks in many cases not how they can save human life, but whether that life should be saved. It wasn't too many years ago uh, that the, those, the men who are older now, say in their 60s, can look back to the tra their training in medical school, and the emphasis was always how, how, what can we do to save this life? The big question one finds among many of the younger medical men coming out of the medical schools now is, should we save this life? A drastic shift, uh, a drastic shift of uh, uh, perspective. Now, this is not only true before birth by abortion, but after birth in the allowing of certain children to starve to death and in the increasing talk of helping the old folks to commit suicide or to help them die. It's moving with tremendous speed. Uh, when uh, Dr. Coop and Frankie and I started on whatever happened to the human race, and we began to emphasize, as we do in that in the book and film, infanticide, a lot of people really thought we were out in left field. Today it's in the newspapers. It's news. It moves with tremendous speed. And the next step is also coming with tremendous speed, and that is the helping of the old people to commit suicide or the helping of them to die as they become an economic and social burden. The January 11 Newsweek had an article, a cover, it was the cover article, showing conclusively that human life begins with conception when the chromosomes come together. All biologists always knew that, or should have always known that, uh, but Newsweek dealt with it specifically in that January 11 uh, edition. I would just say in passing, all biologists know that monkey life begins when, at conception, giraffe life begins at conception, uh, donkey life begins at conception, and you can't stop with human life beginning at conception. But Newsweek clearly spelled this out in that uh, January 11 edition. But you flip the page, and the next page read, but is it a person? So it's human life, but is it a person? Its conclusion is, and I'm reading a direct quote, the problem is not determining when actual human life begins, but when the value of that life begins to outweigh other considerations, such as the health or even the happiness of the mother, end of quote. That little phrase, or even the happiness, should terrify everybody who reads it. It should terrify everybody that, believes, that reads that. It's human life. It's acknowledged to be human life. But if it makes the mother unhappy, she has a right to kill it for her own happiness. In other words, they acknowledge the baby is human life, but that it is an open question as to whether it is not right to kill that human life if it makes the mother unhappy. Basically, this is no different than Hitler's, Stalin, or Mayo's, each of them killing their millions, killing millions and millions of that which is human life because they thought the life they killed was for the good, the happiness of society. Could anybody miss the point? If human life can be taken for this happiness, human life can be taken for that happiness. And especially in an era of increased statism, uh, which is constantly growing. Once it is acknowledged 
that is human life that is involved, and as this issue of Newsweek shows, that is not a question from a biological basis. Once it is acknowledged that it is human life that is involved, the acceptance of the death of human life in babies born or unborn opens the door to the arbitrary taking of any human life. There's absolutely no barrier. Every barrier is removed. It was this view that I opened the door to all the murders in Hitler's Germany and in communistic countries today. If I were in a minority group, if I were in a minority group, I would be fearful. And I'm not just saying that to make a point. I mean it. If I were in a minority group, I would be fearful. And with the door open, Christians should recognize the danger. And I cannot understand why even the humanistic lawyers of the American Civil Liberties Union are not afraid once this door is opened. I fear both they, and too often the Christians, do not just have relativistic values, but are just plain stupid in the light of the lessons of history. I can't understand who any, anybody, how anybody who knows the last 70 years of history, just 70 years, never mind something further back, could fail to see what is involved in the step that has been taken. We cannot be surprised that the liberal theologians come down on the side of the secular humanist on almost every issue, because liberal theology is only humanism using Christian terms. I would urge you to really have this in your bones. You cannot be surprised that the liberal theologians, the liberal governors of the liberal denominations, come down in almost every case on the side of secular humanists on these issues, because liberal theology is only humanism using theological terms. That's all. If you want to trace its history, go back again to how shall we then live, as I spend time there showing where the rise of liberal theology came from uh, out of an attempt to find a synthesis uh, between French rationalism after the Enlightenment uh, and Christianity. An impossible synthesis, but that's what liberalism is. So we cannot be surprised when the liberal theologians come down on almost every issue on the side of the secular humanist. And I would just say, uh, there's a man in Hawaii who has a book published, it's coming out again soon, uh, showing the position that all the denominations in the United States have taken on abortion. And it's a very enlightening, uh, very enlightening study. I wish we had the books here to sell. Because we're almost 100% perfect the liberally controlled denominations have come out publicly in favor of abortion, and the Bible-believing denominations have come out against it. But don't be surprised, because liberal theology will always come down on such issues on the side of secular humanism, because liberal theology is only humanism using theological terms. Dr. Paul Kurtz, who is the author of the Humanist Manifestos. He's the author of both of them, Dr. Paul Kurtz. In an interview said that a great number of contemporary, the contemporary theologians are humanists. And he specifically names Tillich and Fletcher, but he goes on and said, mentions the fact that, that there are many others. This is the man who is the author of the Humanist Manifestos. And he just points out that a man like Tillich is really a humanist. And then I would add, yes, and using theological terms. But where have the Bible-believing Christians been? So we can turn and we look at the church, and we can say, we're not surprised that the liberals, maybe the liberals of your own denomination, always have come out on the side of these issues, on the side of the secular humanists. That's natural. We, we can't expect anything else. But I have a question to ask you. Where have the Bible-believing Christians been? Those who were not the liberals. Where have they 
the Bible-believing Christians been in the last 40 to 80 years as we have moved from a Christian consensus in this country to the horrors and stupidity of the present. You must understand this is a very short thing. Very, very short thing. I'm 70 years of age this year. Everything we're talking about has happened in the last 80 years. More than that, all the climactic things have occurred in the last 40 years. So anybody who's here is 55. All the climactic changes have come in your time, in your, time your adult lifehood. Where have the Bible-believing Christians been? As we have lost the whole culture, and as we have, lost, we have seen these horrors come, and as I say, the stupidity of the present. This country has become close to becoming lost. Not, first of all, from a humanist conspiracy, though there is a humanist conspiracy, but this country is close to being lost, not first of all because of a humanist conspiracy, but because the Christians, often for their own comfort and not to rock the boat on their own projects, have been silent as Christians, as Christian leaders, as Christian lawyers, as Christian doctors, as Christian business people, and all the rest. There's only one reason in the last 40 years we have moved from where we were for in the 40s to where we are in the 80s, wherein we move from a culture that at least had a general, uh, a general uh, men memory of a Christian consensus to a humanistic one. The only reason is that the Christians in those past 40 years have not performed their duty that they should have been performing as Christians. I want to say it again. There is no other reason that our country is in the mess it is. Specifically, the Christian leaders have not provided the leadership. But the Christians in general have not spoken. Christian doctors have not spoken out in their medical profession. Christian lawyers have not fought the cases. Christian businessmen have not used their money in their place in order to speak of these things. Christian teachers have not spoken up. There has been a bewildering, absolute, awful, and sinful silence on the part of the Christians. In the, in the a Christian manifesto, of course, I deal with uh, the reason why I think what they think the, re the reasons for this is. The reasons are. But the fact is quite clear. Those of you who can remember back to the 30s, it was a different, a different world than we live in now. The word abortionist. It was the dirtiest word in the medical profession. You can be one doctor sued another just because a fellow told a joke about his another doctor who called abortion. Sue him. It's awful. Awful. The idea of letting a baby starve to death. The idea of letting a baby starve to death. Starve to death. A baby feel pain, feels pain, you know. The idea of killing a million point something babies uh, through abortion that is painful. There is no abortion that isn't painful to the child. Every single form of abortion is painful to the child. Forty years ago, this country would absolutely have been unbelieving. Today, it is just overwhelming. It's not only legal, it's largely accepted as ethical. And for a lot of people, it's no longer thought of even as an issue. This country was founded on a Christian base with all its freedom for everyone. Let me emphasize, it was founded on a Christian base for all its freedom for everyone. It wasn't just freedom for the Christians. For all its freedom for everyone. And now it is largely lost. We live in a humanistic society and are rapidly moving to a totally humanistic society and country. We aren't there quite yet, but it's very, very, very close. Whether it can be reversed, I am not sure. But we're very, very close. We live no longer in a Christian mentality, 
consensus, perception. We live in a humanistic one, the area of the courts, the schools, go right down the line, the medical concepts. But we do not yet live in a totally humanistic one, but we're moving toward it with remarkable speed. For example, by law, our public schools are now totally secularized and shut out all Christian and all religious teaching, influence and influence, as completely as the Soviet Union does in its school. Most people don't realize that. In the Soviet Union, by law, naturally nothing can be taught in the schools except that which is pure materialism. The final reality is only material energy shaped by pure chance. But don't you realize that in the United States of America, by law, in the public schools, uh, it is equally so that nothing else can be taught? Now, we don't teach Marxianism in most of our schools. There's lots of other things that we don't do that the Marxists do in their schools, the Soviet Union. But as far as the teaching of the final reality is concerned, in the, in the schools in this country, it's as impossible by law to teach the other viewpoint as it is in the Soviet Union. Congress opens with prayer because it is always open with prayer because the Founding Fathers founded this country on the basis of God as Creator. Yet, how schizophrenic can you be? Congress is not officially open till there's a prayer. But the children in the public schools can't pray. Who can miss where we have, where the change has come through the years? Congress prays, but the children cannot pray in the public schools. And there have been challenges down the line. It's not just the teacher leading in prayer, but using school property for the children to have voluntary prayer. I would repeat, we are not only immoral in these things, we are stupid. How well could we live in that kind of a situation and the whole, the whole public not say how skits we are? What's happened? Now, what do we call this? There's only one word that will fit, and that is the word tyranny. There is no other proper word in the English language. This is tyranny. And the Pharaoh fathers acted to defeat such tyranny in their day, and Christians and others who love liberty and human life should also be so acting in our day. This is tyranny. And there is no other proper word to be applied to it. If we do not act now to use every means to get rid of such tyranny, and the hidden censorship we face on every side. We face a tremendous hidden censorship. Every once in a while, when you're in a discussion, somebody will jump up uh, from the other side. You say, do you believe in censorship? Well, one must discuss. But one must realize there are two kinds of censorship. One is an open censorship. The other is a hidden censorship. And a hidden censorship is much harder to meet than an open censorship. And we face a hidden censorship. The perfect example, of course, is with Frankie, with this Frankie's film, uh, Whatever Happened to the Human Race. And uh, it was taken to the uh, public television representative in Washington, D.C., and went D.C., and happened to be a woman, just happened to be. When she asked what it was about, and they said it was opposed to abortion, she said she wouldn't even look at it. Because everything must, must show both sides. And at the very same time, public television with public money, maybe your gifts, we're showing, showing these, uh, these, this series of film, Hard Choices, which was an abomination as pure propaganda in favor of abortion. It's hidden censorship. Hidden censorship. Public television's perfect example. Carl Sagan's Cosmos. Clark Civilization. All the best films. Bernowski's film. Send a man. Marvelous films, technically, especially Banowski. But as far as meaning is concerned, totally one-sided in presenting the final reality being only material or energy shaped by pure charm. 
complete propaganda from that side. But when we bring whatever happened to the human race, they won't even look at it. What do you call it? It is hidden censorship. Hidden censorship. If we do not act now to use every means to get rid of such tyranny and the hidden censorship we face on every side, I do not think we are going to get another opportunity. It is now or never. We still have an opportunity. My personal opinion is this is the last time around. The Christians of this country and other people of goodwill, but specifically the Christians, don't, if necessary, tear loose from the Christian leadership if they will not speak and begin to speak and to act out of the totality of society. If we do not do it, I do not believe we're going to have another opportunity. In the present so-called conservative swing in the last election, we do have an opportunity. As I stress in the uh, Christian Manifesto, there is an open window at the present moment. We do have an opportunity. But let me give you something that I hope you always remember. A conservative humanism is no better than a liberal humanism. The issue isn't the word conservative and liberal. I don't know how you vote. I don't know how you think. But these words are meaningless in this struggle. A conservative humanism is no better than a liberal humanism. And in the present situation, we must make every, use every means available to us to use the open door, which we do have at this moment, to roll back the awful and inevitable results brought forth by the other worldview that is, that the final reality is only material energy shaped by pure chance. In the present situation, we must not be satisfied with mere words. We do have a, an open window that hasn't existed for a long time. The two steps. First of all, merely the word conservative means nothing in this, in this discussion. Because a conservative humanism is no better than a liberal one. And secondly, in our present situation, we must not be satisfied with mere words. There must be a real change. It is now or never. The next sentence may surprise you, but I'm convinced that it is true. What I've been talking about is true spirituality. Christians will every so often, with a wrong view of spirituality, a pi wrong pietism, say, but is it spiritual to be involved in all this? I want to tell you something. Not to be involved in these things is, is a false spirituality. True spirituality demands the lordship of Christ and the totality of life. There is no dichotomy. There are things which are sinful, which are to be set aside. But the rest of life belongs to the Lord. And it is the Christian's task, of course, to lead individuals to Christ the Savior. But it is also the Christian's task to deal with raw tyranny, to, draw, to deal with raw murder, to deal with raw sin as we are surrounded. It is not a question, is this spiritual? It is the reverse. As the church has let all this happen in the last 40 years with its silence, the basic problem is a lack of true spirituality. If the church had really been under the direction of the leadership of the Holy Spirit and sitting within the circle of the teaching of the Word of God, they never could have sat quiet and allowed this to happen. The real root is not a lack of knowledge. The real root somewhere back here is a false view of spirituality and a lack of true spirituality. Because true spirituality is Christ being the Lord of all of life and not just what is usually called religion. Nothing more dishonors the living Christ than to make him only the Lord of your religious life. That's awful. He's the Lord of all of life. Your profession, your duties as a citizen, your duties as a parent, husband and wife, whole thing, but certainly your duty as a citizen among all the rest. The Lord Jesus Christ 
is to be Lord not just of our religious life, whatever that might mean in that setting, but the Lord of all of life. The great revivals of the past, which we talk about so much, Christians love to repeat, Wesley, Whitfield, the American Great Awakening, the great revivals, those of you who come from Scandinavian countries, of Norway, of Sweden, of Finland, these tremendous revivals that made such a difference. The great revivals of the past called for individual salvation. Of course they did. But in every case, these revivals also brought social change. There's not a single one of the great revivals that with individual salvation didn't bring social change. Not one. As I quote in a Christian manifesto uh, from the uh, Wall Street Journal, you remember that quotation? It was the Great Awakening that prepared the way uh, for the founding of this country in a very, a very definite way. It was Wesley's revival and the social changes abroad that saved, uh, that saved England from its own form of the French Revolution, as I developed so carefully in How Shall We Then Live? These great revivals in every case were double in the results. Individual salvation, thousands saved. Wonderful. But social change. Social change. And we must stand in that stream today with courage, even if the price, if there is a price to pay in our own profession, and then even if this price is high. And if we do not comprehend that the Lordship of Christ and true spirituality uh, means something in individual salvation indeed, but then on into the whole of society, and if we're not willing to take this stand, we are not in the stream of the great revivals, no matter how much we talk about them. And one has to face a question. And that is, what is loyalty to Christ worth to you? What is loyalty to Christ worth to you? What kind of a price do you put on it? We must smash the lie of the new and novel concept of the separation of religion and state which now exists. This naturally just follows along, because this would be the next question we would be asked. This lie is totally against the original meaning of the First Amendment. We must make plain that we're totally opposed to any form of a theocracy, in fact, a word. Now, we've got to say that and keep saying it because people sometimes honestly don't understand what we're trying to say. And on the other hand, they will very naughtily and purposely uh, use this against us, even if they know better in certain cases. We must say over and over again, have fixed in our heads, say it, we are, not, we are not talking about a theocracy in any way, not only in name, but de facto. And we must not confuse patriotism with loyalty to Christ. That sentence that I put in the manifesto, we mustn't wrap our, uh, our Christianity in our country's flag. It's very imperative that we don't confuse these things, patriotism and our loyalty to the Lord Jesus. Yet, we must realize that though we reject any concept of theocracy, yet it is our, not only our right, it is our duty to bring Christian principles into the area of government. The founders built the country on these concepts, and we have a responsibility, not only because it is right, but for the good of our fellow men. And I would give you something that to me often is not stressed enough. And that is, we are, as we obey the things which God gives us in his word. If there is a God, the infinite personal God, and he has made us in his image, and then his character is the law of the universe, and we were made in the light of his character as well as his being, and then he gives us a scripture which was a reflection of his character, then what he commands in the scripture is not only right, but it's for humanity's best good, as the Creator knows is the best good. Enough about that. It is not only that it is right, 
but it is for the best good of the humanness, humanness of what we were made as made in the image of God. It is not a stifling, as we're told by many today or by modern psychology often, uh, of our freedoms, of our selfness, of our fulfillment to obey the law of God or for other people to obey it. He knows what fulfills. And we are created in his image. The law is a reflection of his character. And the keeping of his law is for our best good as human beings. Therefore, as our country was founded upon, historically we have a right to speak for Christian principles because our founding country was totally founded upon it. And you'll feel this very strongly if you read John Whitehead's book, The Second American Revolution. And then secondly, it is for people's best good. So though it is true, we would struggle, and I would struggle against any form of theocracy, and would urge people not to confuse their patriotism and their Christianity. Yet that does not mean for a moment that we don't have the duty as well as the privilege of bringing Christian principles into the area of government. What do we want? I would suggest that what we want, what we want is freedom. Real freedom. And especially real freedom for all religions. That's what we want. That was the original purpose of the First Amendment. All we ask for is what the founding fathers of this country stood for and died for. That's all we're asking. We're asking for a just, and historic carrying out of the First Amendment. When now the First Amendment has been turned over and turned as an instrument against bringing Christian principles into the area of government. And we must use every method to stand for a high view of human life in the midst of all this. This is closely linked to all we've been saying. Against the snowballing low view of human life which surrounds us under the hypocritical but high-sounding terms such as private choice. We hear that, and people say it so piously. But we must realize it's totally hypocritical. What it means is total choice in the same way that somebody killing a person in the street says, I have a right to choose to kill this man in the street. There's no difference. There's no difference. What does this mean, this high-sounding term? It really means the right to kill human life for my own selfish purposes. It doesn't sound so good when one analyzes what is involved. For the happiness of the mother, for the happiness of society, for the selfish, selfish desire of selfish purposes of someone else. When a government, the next step, when a government negates the law of God, it abrogates its authority. We haven't been taught that sufficiently, but our forefathers knew it. Our forefathers knew it, and they stood for it. As I pointed out in the uh, Christian Manifesto again, uh, there was no place where the Reformation was successful. No place where the Reformation was successful. Where there wasn't an element of civil disobedience and often violence. Where God's people didn't finally say uh, the government is contradicting the word of God, and thus it is no longer the government. It has abrogated its authority and is to be disobeyed. And I would just say in passing, until Christians really get this ground into their bones, we are not free to act. We're in prison. We're in chains. When a government, a human government, commands that which is contrary to the law of God, negates the law of God, it abrogates its authority. It no longer has any authority at that point. At a certain point, it is not only the privilege, but the duty of the Christian to disobey the government. That is what the founding fathers of this country did in the name of throwing off tyranny. That's why there is and was a United States of America. That is what the early Christians did. That is why they were thrown to the beast in the Roman, uh, Roman arena. 
They refused to obey the state and worship Caesar. And they were willing to die in their civil disobedience and in their rebellion. In such a situation, every appropriate, now I come to the next step, if you're taking notes, appropriate, every appropriate legal and political governmental means must be used. And it should be always on the appropriate level. It should always be on the appropriate level. The least level that is possible at that particular place and moment. Every appropriate legal and political and governmental means must be used. But the final bottom line, but the final bottom line, the early Christians, the people of the Reformation, the founding fathers of this country faced and they acted on is the realization if there is no place for disobeying the government, that government has been put in the place of a living God. In such a case, the government has been made a false God. Think it through. If a government can command anything and you must obey, or if you make it this your position, which unhappily many Christians have fallen into, if you say the government is to obey, be obeyed no matter what, then the government has been placed in the, play, in the position of the living God, and government has been made a false god. The early Christians refused to make Caesar the false god, and they were willing to die for it. The answer is, is this biblical to hold this view that the government is to be obeyed no matter what? And the answer is no. It is really a horrible view. It is saying that the government has a right to become a false god and you still should worship it, as it were, or obey it. Caesar is not to be put in the place of God. Caesar is not to be put into the place of God. And we as Christians, in the name of the Lordship of Christ and all of life, must so think and act on the appropriate level, there's the word again, the appropriate level, and if it is unhappily necessary, that appropriate level must include an open disobedience to the government. And anything short of that is not loyalty to Christ as King and Lord. Christ must be the final Lord, and not society, and not Caesar. We'll have a break and then we'll go into the discussion.